Hey there, Bass Edgers. Welcome to the August edition, or should I maybe say the heated edition? After all, we are smack dab in the middle of summer here. As always, we appreciate your listening ears for another episode of The Edge, presented by KeelGuard, the industry's first do-it-yourself keel protector and a Bass Edge partner since 2006. Make sure you check them out on the World Wide Web at KeelGuard.com. I am your new co-host, Kurt Dove, and of course, I'm joined by the anchor of Bass Edge, Aaron Martin. Aaron, here we go this is my first shot at the big time in the world of podcasts and i tell you i gotta admit that i'm gonna miss steve on the show but buddy i am ready to rock and roll are you feeling a good vibe i am feeling the good vibe of course i tell you a little concerned over there with you considering you're sitting there in your life jacket with your kill switch attached i I don't know if you're gonna pull the plug on my microphone or what's going on but we do have a great show lined up a couple of young guns coming out of woodwork first up will be jonathan van dam fresh off his elite victory and 2013 Bassmaster Classic qualification. Then we'll head out east to your old stomping grounds in Virginia to visit with Josh Waggy. Yeah, these guys are great, and I can't wait to talk to these folks today and see what they've got to say about fishing and and making us all a little bit better anglers. Get her like that, boy. Good job. I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge of bass fishing yet. That's full contact fishing right there. Conditions are going to be tough, but we'll catch them. This is, a, this is a good place. It's all about figuring it out. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. yeah. Oh, did you see yeah. that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. <laughs> Holy cow. You're listening to The Edge. Everything bass fishing from the Bass Edge Studios. High above Table Rock Lake in the Missouri Ozarks. Well, Kurt, I understand, and from seeing the pictures on Facebook that you were so kind <laughs> to post for us, uh, you actually did quite a bit of smallmouth fishing up there on Lake St. Clair and actually had a fantastic finish. Yeah, fortunately I did. Um, I love fishing for smallmouth. It's it's so awesome. And, and this particular event, the Open there on St. Clair, it was a really neat event. One, I was really surprised. Uh, you know, you hear about Detroit, and obviously the, the auto industry has had some tough times here over the last few years, but, man, that is a beautiful beautiful area. I was shocked at, at what a beautiful place Detroit was and uh, how everybody there made us all feel at home. And But man, they had some crazy weather up there while we were hunting around for those smallmouth, let me tell you. Well, I heard that uh, basically the only lure you needed for day one was a rain suit. <laughs> That's exactly right. I practiced up there for about four days. We had beautiful weather, very light winds, uh, sunshine. It was actually really hot for the Detroit area. I felt like I brought Del Rio weather up to Detroit. As a matter of fact, it was in the high 90s almost a uh, 100 degrees a couple days and then as typical you know tournament rolls in and uh we got rain wind more wind than than we could have asked for and uh cloudy sky so it just kind of really changed everything and for one thing it really changes it it made the smallmouth bite fantastic i mean did you see the weights on that tournament i did and what is it you know i'm most people know i'm not an ozarkian on table rock lake you know i moved down here in 2005 and part of that was because they had all three species of fish and offshore structure, clear water, dirty water, kind of just a, right. a, a really a hotbed for learning how to bass fish. But I'm always amazed when it comes to smallmouth fishing, it seems like, you know, the nastier the weather, the better the bite. You know, I've, I've noticed that smallmouth are crazy. They, they're just a crazy fish. And I think that's why I like chasing them so much is just because they change so much. But yeah, you know, you get the windy, crazy, nasty conditions, uh, you know, cloudy and they bite. And then even sometimes when it's just as sunny as can be, you can get up there in two and three foot of water and see those guys prowling around for crawdads and all kinds of stuff and, and start catching them on, you know, burning spinner baits and a foot and a half and two foot under the surface or, or even throwing a big topwater or something. But yeah, it was an amazing tournament, a lot of fun. Um, you know, another thing that uh, the Great Lakes was really cool is that, you know, we had two rivers to fish while we were there. So, you know, it was kind of like bringing back the way, way old school, you know, from fishing the Potomac and things when I grew up. But uh, it was very diverse. And again, just, just an awesome fishery and and those smallmouth man they they fight they fight just to the end just never quit oh for sure and i mean there's there's no question you know pound for pound ounce for ounce uh, certainly the most fierce competitor i've ever had on the end of my line i believe of course i've never yeah. been red fishing but it, within the freshwater species of bass uh, right. you know it begs to ask the question then obviously you're a guide down on amistad uh, right. you've been up north bass fishing traditionally i guess if you will kind of birthed out of you know a southern sport 
and we've been spending a lot of time talking about the northern fishing conditions and the, and the opportunities there up there. But just shoot us straight. Do you like uh, the northern smallmouth fishing better than you know fishing for the big blacks down in the south? Yeah, there's nothing like catching a huge largemouth. I mean, you just see that head, and man, your eyes just blow up like light bulbs. It's amazing. But you know, I gotta say, the smallmouth has a close second because they just fight so hard. It's it's just amazing. It's really the diversity of how you fish for the largemouth and how you fish for the smallmouth. Of course, there's a lot of crossover there, but it's just so different. So it just touches different senses and and gets your angling ability running in a different direction. So when I'm down there guiding on Amistad and catching those big largemouth, no question, it's a great time and and something I I would never trade it for. But when it starts to hit high 90s down in Del Rio and I can go up to Detroit, for example, and fish St. Clair and catch some of those brown fish, I'll never give up the opportunity, that's for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, one other thing is what's the handful of baits that every angler has to have right now for fishing the brownies in the northern area? Well, you know, you can never go wrong with a tube. It is the bait that every smallmouth angler has to have in his boat, you know, a tube with with a jig head. Typically, you know, a quarter ounce is all around good size, but generally the shallower the water you're fishing, the lighter tube head you want to use, maybe down to an eighth ounce. And if you start getting into that deeper water, um, you know, moving up to a half ounce tube and also obviously depending on the wind, maybe a three quarter ounce tube as well. But uh, outside of the tube, a drop shot, you can't go wrong. And the smallmouth can't stand it when something goes by them super fast and is really bright. So either a bright crankbait or even, a, you know, sometimes a shad looking crankbait or and a spinnerbait. When they hit that thing, it's like they break your arm off. I mean, you're just winding it as fast as you can and burning it through there. And, and I mean, they will just drill that thing and try and steal the rod out from your hand. Now, what about as far as on the tube? Are you, are you fishing that on an exposed hook when you say the jig head? Is that the insert type and then also colors? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the insert type is, is exactly what you want to do with the exposed hook. And, uh, you know, up at St. Clair, you know, you're fishing around some grass, but, but don't shy away from that exposed hook when you're around grass uh, because, you know, the thing that you can do to keep more of that off of your line is just lighten up that weight on the hook, you know, for that jig head. That's probably one of the biggest key things is, is to change. You know, I think so many times as anglers, we, you know, we get lazy a little bit. You know, we've got something tied on. We've got it all rigged up and we're out there firing it. It's not doing exactly what we want it to do. But, you know, oftentimes we say to ourselves, ah, it's it's good enough. Well, you know, just those slight little changes or just retying to a little bit different weight size, it can make all the difference in the world versus a successful day or or just, an, you know, a successful day catching fish or just another day out fishing. So don't get complacent when you're out there and, and you're fishing something that's not working just exactly how you want it to. Make those small little modifications and small little adjustments that'll give you much more success. And finally, Kurt, what about color? Yeah, the color, that's right. You, you had mentioned that as well. I kind of went off on a tube jig tangent there, but <laughs> the color, you know, not not a hugely important factor. You know, you got your browns, your watermelons, and your green pumpkins. Those are kind of my go-tos on tubes. Um, I think one thing you want to look at is size, you know, maybe be even a little bit more important than color, but, you know, a big difference between a three-inch tube and a four-inch tube. I mean, it doesn't sound a whole lot, but it's it's like driving a 20-foot boat versus a 21-foot boat. When the waves are big, you really want to be in that 21-footer. But uh, in the tube size, I think that you can catch a little bit better quality fish with a bigger bait. So, you know, that 4-inch tube catches a little bit better fish. If you're trying to get a few more bites, try that 3-inch tube. But in the color-wise, you know, I'm trying to keep it real simple. Watermelon, green pumpkins, some browns, you're good to go. Well, speaking of, you know, fishing up north, certainly targeting smallmouth, I'm excited as it looks like we have Jonathan Van Dam ready to go. He's called in. Let's head out after a quick break and see what Jonathan has to say. You know the importance of protecting your investments. So why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. Keel Guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard keel protectors. Hey, this is Kevin Van Dam. This is Brian Maloney. This is Dion Hibden, and thanks for listening to The Edge. 
Most fishermen agree time on the water is an angler's biggest asset. But at the ripe old age of 23, our next guest has already amassed two tour-level wins and qualified for the 2013 Bassmasters Classic. Please help me welcome in his sophomore season on BASS Elite's returning guest, Jonathan Van Dam. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, guys. It's great to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. You know, Kurt and I was talking uh, briefly before we got on the line with you. You know, a few years ago, we actually used to be considered the young guns, and now all of a sudden, you kind of make us feel really old, man. <laughs> well, I'm not trying to, you know. It's, uh, but you're exactly, though. It's starting, I mean, even in some cases, I just kind of feel old. You know, there's guys that are 18, 19 starting to fish the tour now based on all the opportunities they have, you know, through the college levels and, the you know, the junior tournaments and stuff. You know, the younger generation's getting pretty tough and it's exciting to see because obviously you know that's the future of our sport and obviously that breeds a lot of confidence uh conservation just a a lot of positive things that's coming as a result of that and and you're right it is exciting to see john i've known you for several years now and you know it's an understatement to say that uh that you're competitive and i was recently reading on the bassmaster.com that um sounds as if the anglers wives are pushing for a competition amongst the wives for backing in their husband's boat trailers down the ramp. And I, I guess I've got to ask you, does this mean you're going to get married? <laughs> um, not any time in your future. It might mean I have to start training my girlfriend how to back a boat. You know, <laughs> that's, that's the only thing. that. You mean she doesn't know already? Well... I mean, I feel like she could do it, but I haven't really, you know, cut her loose yet, to be honest with you. So, uh, I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Last time I tried to teach a girlfriend that, you know, she's an ex-girlfriend now, but she smashed my trailer in the side of the dock. So, uh, you know, that didn't work very well. So, I'm taking it a little slower this time. Yeah, that sounds like good testing grounds to see if she'll last and stay around for a while anyway. Exactly, exactly. That's, that's the big test for her, you know. Well, hey, Jonathan, first off, I want to congratulate you on your recent leave victory there at uh, Lake Michigan. And of course, you know, everybody loves the classic qualification that comes with these wins these days. I mean, it's like instant celebrity. You already know where you're going. You already know you made the classic. It's got to be just one of the greatest feelings there is to know that you've already got that classic hunt, even though you've got, you know, another elite event coming up. But, uh, you know, describe for us your approach and what led to that victory out there on Lake Michigan. Uh, you know, to be honest with you, I got the opportunity to do a little pre-fishing. You know, this was a mystery event, so we really had no idea where we were going until a month before the tournament. And, uh, you know, but as soon as they announced it, it went off limits. It just, it, I mean, it just so happened for me that a week before they announced it, I fished a tournament on uh, Sturgeon Bay, which is a small bay off of Green Bay. Got a chance to fish over there for a few days and really look around and, and look around the bay. You know, and I was only doing it for fun. I really had no idea that the tournament would end up being there. But once they announced it, you know, it was it was pretty awesome so I, at that point you know i started formulating the game plan uh you know based upon where, what stage the fish were when i was there the week before you know and it ended up being you know i, I anticipated some posts you know mostly post spawn um you know a lot of fish up cruising and, and feeding getting ready to move out to the deep water and that's exactly what they were doing jonathan you've told me numerous times smallmouth are at the top of your list as far as preferred species to target how does your game plan change from smallmouth versus spotted bass or largemouth? Uh, you know, for for me, uh, you know, I've grown up fishing smallmouth, so I I'm comfortable with with uh, you know the way they act, and and they're they're very very unpredictable to be honest with you. And one thing that I can tell you about a smallmouth is the only thing you can count on with them is that you can't count on them, and uh, <laughs> it's tough really to be honest with you because they move so much, but. Um, you know, and, and a lot of their, you know, what people don't understand is a lot of the lakes and stuff that these smallmouth are in are all, uh, you know, current-based lakes, like the Great Lakes and stuff, all have a natural current similar to, like, what the ocean does. And, um, you know, I really try to, uh, you know, pay close attention to that and, uh, you know, close attention to water um, clarity and, uh, and obviously, wind direction and, and uh, you know, conditions and stuff like that. And that really plays a big role in how, you know, how to approach smallmouth, for sure. John, I recently read, you know, in an article that um, you were quoted as saying that your head almost has to be, it's almost like it's mounted on a swivel. And, you know, most anglers are accustomed to targeting bass really in relation to the shoreline and using that kind of as a, as a guide. But fishing the north and specifically the Great Lakes, because both you and Kurt just got off of uh, St. Clair, you know, for the BASS Northern Open, you know, often the shoreline is miles away. Walk us through how you are finding concentrations of bass and really just break down that mammoth amount of open water. Uh, you know, the big thing is, is you rely on your GPS and your graph a lot. 
And, uh, you know, I really spend a lot of time when I'm out there, um, you know, grafting around, looking for small rock piles, looking for, um, you know, patches of weeds. Like St. Clair specifically, uh, you know, where Kurt and I just were, it, it really doesn't have a lot of structure to it. It's more of like a bowl. And, you know, what you want to look for is just, you know, some of the patches of weeds and, and the bait fish and stuff out there. And, you know, the small mobs really relate to to a bait fish. Um, you know, but, again, the biggest thing is just relying a lot on maps. Uh, you know, both paper maps and, uh, you know, like Lake Master map chips. And then also using, coupling that with my side imaging and my sonar and just trying to, you know, look for rock piles or, or something like that. And that's really, um, you know, I spend more time driving around at most of those places than I do fishing, you know, because the smallmouth, you know, they're very aggressive. So if you find a place that you think looks good, you can get up and fish it and, you know, maybe make four or five casts. And if there's one there, you'll know, you know, pretty quick. Uh, you know, they don't waste any time playing with the bait or anything like that. You know, they'll they'll go ahead and bite it right away if they're there, you know. Hey, John, I tell you what, I got, I got a question for you. You know, obviously we're able to get out there and, and kind of dissect these lakes through multiple days of, of pre-fishing and, and just being able to fish, you know, much more often than your average weekend angler. You know, for a lot of our listeners, when they go out there, what is it they can look at? You know, what are you targeting when you're looking at a paper map versus your GPS or, or those kind of tools that you have? that you can get out there and kind of maybe dissect an area real quickly instead of spending four or five hours driving around looking for that stuff. What are some things some weekend anglers can look at or kind of key on really quickly to help them find these fish quicker? Uh, you know, obviously it's all going to depend on, um, you know, what, what time of year it is and what stage, you know, the fish are in. But, um, you know, for, for as far as for like summertime patterns and stuff, I look for a lot of, um, you know, the deeper flats, you know, adjacent to the spawning areas, you know, where those fish would move straight from the spawning areas out to those deeper flats. And that's where I would start looking for some rock or some grass or something like that. Obviously, you know, points and, and shoals and stuff like that are always a good place to start, too. Those shoals typically always have, you know, a lot of rock and that kind of thing around them. And, uh, you know, that's that's probably the best place to start. You know, start by looking outside the spawning bays, you know, in some of those deeper flats. And then, you know, also the um, the shoals and the points and that kind of thing is off those shoals seem to really hold them a lot more than just your average shoreline. Jonathan, and you may have already answered this in your earlier comment just as far as the sheer unpredictability of, of smallmouth, but are there rules of thumb for smallmouth that we can always keep in mind when we're going out specifically targeting them? Now, there's not like a particular thing that you necessarily have to follow to, to, to really get dialed in on the smallmouth. You know, like I said, they move so much and they're very unpredictable. Uh, you know, the one thing that I will say is the smallmouth are very current driven and they're, you know, they're very bait fish driven as well. So if you, the, the bait fish and the current are your two biggest things. Um, and then obviously, you know, once you find the bait fish, you know, you find the structure and that kind of thing that they're hanging on. And typically it's because of some sort of current, whether it's a wind driven current or just a natural, you know, natural lake current, you know, and that, that really seems to position those fish a lot better than anything else does. And, uh, you know, that's really what I try to look for the most is the bait fish and, and, uh, any sort of current you know, whether it be wind-driven or, or natural. It sounds like there's a lot of diversity there with, uh, you know, those different things. And diversity is a term that we use a lot. Jonathan, what are the main differences between fishing in the north versus south? You know, obviously you've had great success, you know, on the Great Lakes, and and um, but but you've also done very well down south. So what, what are some of the main differences between fishing in the north versus the south? Uh, there's a pretty good number of differences. First, you know, first of all is, is uh, you know, the lake types that we have up north, you know, a lot of natural lakes and that kind of thing, uh, glacier-made you know, lakes, whereas down south you have mainly all reservoirs. Um, you know, but a lot of those, you can relate to them, you know, a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, the Great Lakes still has current just like a reservoir does, and that positions the fish on specific pieces of structure. Um, we have a lot of the same similar types of grass, you know, with, with like weed mats and lily pads and stuff like that. The best thing about up north, to be honest with you, is there's so many different styles of lakes, you know, between reservoirs, river systems, you know, that have all the backwaters and stuff. I mean, growing up in Michigan, just uh, within a 30-mile radius from my house, I've had, I had natural lakes, uh, you know, reservoirs, river systems, you know, with backwaters and all that. So, uh, you know, really allowed me to, you know, diversify my fishing style and really get some experience on, you know, every different kind of, you know, water type. So that it really helped out a lot, you know, being from up north. 
uh, you know, being able to transfer a lot of that stuff that I that I learned uh, down to some of the lakes down south. Hey, one quick question concerning when you bring up, you know, the natural lakes. Uh, what do you see the big difference between fishing a natural lake versus a man-made lake? You know, the fish act a lot more differently. Um, you know, the uh, man-made lakes and stuff obviously have, you know, a dam. And when they when they pull water through that dam system, it positions those fish on that structure. Whereas most natural lakes, um, you know, especially like some of the smaller ones, they don't have a lot of current or, or really, you know, in this, as far as total the bottom structure and the, uh, you know, total structure of the lake is completely different. So, you know, I, I honestly think that natural lakes are a lot harder to predict than, you know, man-made reservoirs are. Again, it's one of those things that it really benefits you to learn because there's always things you can apply all around the country. Let me go one step further. Let's take this north-south thing a little bit farther. You know, in my travels, you know, you see a lot of fish caught down south, and there are some awesome, awesome lakes down there. But, you know, you see these weights and, and these these uh, these tournaments that go on up north. Jonathan, do you think there's more fish up north than there is down south? I do think so. You know, I mean, uh, a lot of the northern lakes that we go to, you know, guys just seem to catch a lot more numbers. You know, there'll be places down south that I'll go to and practice, and I, I'll get bites, but I won't set the hook on hardly any of them. You know, maybe one, especially, you know, lakes in Florida where you get on a stretch of weeds. You know, yeah, I might stick the first fish and then, you know, keep on going. And, um, you know, that's, that's one of those things that I actually, uh, you know, give a lot of my friends hard times on, you know, when fishing tournaments and stuff is that, you know, my buddies and stuff sometimes on those opens, you know, they'll, they'll catch them real good in practice and then they won't catch them in a tournament it's because they're sticking all their fish. But, you know, up north you can get away with that a little more it's because, you know, there's a lot more of them. Granted, we don't have the size that the lakes down south do, but, uh, you know, as far as your numbers go, I mean, the, the north's hard to beat. You know, it's basically all the little lakes and even, you know, the Great Lakes and all that just have an absolute tremendous number of fish in them. Well, I think you boys just started a civil war amongst <laughs> the bass fishing north versus south. So um, that, that, that rests on you guys' lap, not on mine. But... Uh, Anyway, hey, let's, that's fine. I think I think I can handle it. <laughs> hey, let's let's head in slightly a different direction, Jonathan. I want to perhaps you know uh, put to rest some some of the myths that are out there. I guess when it comes to the tournament circuit, you know, you've just banked a hundred thousand in cash as a result of of that elite win. You did very well, obviously at St. Clair. You and Kurt both. Uh, you got the berth in the 2013 Classic, but give us the inside scoop, a peek into your psyche, if you will. Does that translate into, you know, sponsors now beating down your door to sign you? And, um, you know, just how, how does all that play into in the life of a professional tournament angler? Uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. I can't say I've had anybody beating down my door yet. But, uh, you know, it definitely helps. It definitely, especially, you know, with Nate qualifying for the Classic and, uh, you know, and having a, an elite win, basically what it does is it really gives you an upper hand on a lot of the other guys because there's a lot of guys that don't have any elite wins, you know, and it's awful tough because you know, once you have a win, you kind of prove yourself almost to people, you know, and, and uh, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of really good fishermen that, that have never had a win, but, you know, a lot of times it takes that win to really, you know, make people notice you, you know, especially with all the media coverage and that kind of thing that comes with it, you know, and then as far as qualifying for the classic once you win and, and that kind of thing, that really helps as well, too, because, um, you know, not only is it the biggest stage, you know, in, in bass fishing, you know, really it helps because that's the first term of the year because, you know, that way you can tell your sponsors, hey, you know, the first term of the year is where the most exposure happens. And, uh, you know, and that really gives you kind of a, a bargaining tool there and basically just kind of getting them, you know, fired up about early in the season. Whereas, uh, you know, just because basically everybody that qualifies for the Classic gets, gets some sort of coverage, you know for the most part and um just based on the sheer fact that there's almost you know anywhere from 90 to 100,000 people there you know so it's it's just the sheer fact of that coverage there of, of the people that actually attend the event not including the website and all that it is really a big time tool yeah jonathan I, I can see where your career is headed in in a very positive direction and you know but along those same lines when you're looking at people and and qualifying for classics and and winning elite events given your age and and your recent success how have you been received on tour by the other anglers and by the media in general uh you know i've, I've grown up you know in this industry uh, my dad's owned a sporting goods store um, in Kalamazoo for uh, 20 some odd years you know and i fished a number of events as a co-angler and stuff when they had a co-angler for the elites and a lot of these guys have really uh 
you know, just, just become my friends. And I've known them long before I started, you know, before I actually made it onto the Elite Tour. So, but granted, you know, there's still, uh, in some cases, a little bit of um, resentment sometimes where, uh, you know, guys will have, you know, some sort of attitude or whatever just because you're younger. You know, they expect a, a lot of respect, you know, and in and, and most you know, we, we try to give them as much respect as, as we can, you know, and that's, but sometimes, you know, things happen. So kind of just got to roll with it, you know, and try not to let anything get to you or, and stuff like that. Well, and at the end of the day, I mean, you still have a job to do. And, and you know, ultimately, I'm sure you probably heard a few times that, uh, you know, you're getting help from, you know, shared waypoints or something like that. But bottom line is you still have to go out and do your thing and be able to function in the space that you're given. And uh, you still ultimately have to catch the fish. You definitely do. And that's that's the thing is, uh, you know, no matter how many waypoints you get or, you know, people get or don't get or whatever, you know, bottom line is you still, at the end of the day, you have to go out and do your job and catch them and, and and, you know, and I won't lie, I've, I've gotten some waypoints from people in the past, you know, and to be honest with you, I mean, have I ever really done real well off any of them? No, you know, the, the fairness that I find that you do the best in is the ones that, you know, when, when you go there and just kind of fish your style, you know, and, and that's when you're going to have the most confidence and, uh, you know, really use all your abilities to be able to, to figure it out, you know, and, it, and it's just, for me, it's a lot more rewarding that way. So, you know, I try to, as little as possible, to not get any information or, or waypoints or anything like that, because the last thing I want to do is, is, you know, is get a bunch of waypoints and then have somebody eventually that I'm fishing with uh, or against, you know, have, have have gotten those waypoints, you know, and, and then have an altercation with a friend or, or whatever, you know, and that's the last thing you want you just try to grind it out on your own you know oh, yeah you know i've always said the hardest fish to catch is somebody else's fish <laughs> amen that, brother that's exactly right Dude, that's, that's for sure <laughs> well jonathan before leaving i want to get your input on a listener question we're kind of brought here to the uh, bass tackle depot.com listener question segment paul tiffany from fergus falls minnesota up in your neck of the woods wants to know oh yeah when fishing some topwater baits, sometimes the line slaps and zips on the surface of the water. Do you notice that it affects the number of bites when that is happening? Again, this is from Paul in Fergus Falls, Minnesota. Yeah, I've never really noticed, uh, you know, any, any particular time where the line slap, um, you know, might have caused the fish to, you know, not commit to the bait as much as, as, as it should. Um, you know, typically what I find affects them more when topwater fishing, if you're not getting a fish to really commit to the bait, is, is usually color. Um, you know, the line flap that I've noticed, you know, is very minimal, and usually that, that topwater bait, whether it's, uh, you know, like a striking sexy dog, a walking style bait, usually that has, you know, a pretty loud rattle, and that's really not, it's going to kind of overwhelm that line flap. So, you know, in most cases, you know, like I said, what I find to be, you know, affect it more so than anything is is color so i i really don't think that the line flap has much to do with uh you know the level of, of commitment of, of this bass or uh you know fish gives to a top water john have you ever noticed that that slap kind of uh sometimes might attract bait fish it's maybe like a like a little hydro wave <laughs> yeah you know i've definitely to be honest with you i've noticed you know like bluegills and uh you know especially especially up here up north and when you get around some uh, flop and, you know, pads and stuff like that, those bluegills come up and they'll actually peck at your line and stuff like that. So, I mean, it, it might help a little bit in that case, but I don't think really it has anything to do with your overall, you know, reaction to the, to the bait itself. Well, Jonathan, all good stuff. And as a result of Paul's question being chosen, he receives a $25 gift card to BassTackleDepot.com. So just a reminder to all the listeners, be sure and send in your questions to be answered by the pros here on Bass Edge. Jonathan, we are out of time, but uh, just want to thank you for being on the edge once again and really look forward to hooking up with you again soon. Wish you the best of luck in uh, the final events of 2012 and certainly best of luck in the upcoming Classic in 2013. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. It was great to be back. Yeah, John, thanks for being here. We'll see you down the road. At Legend Boats, we have one agenda, to build the finest bass boat on the water. It's our passion. Our hand-laid hulls and zero-tolerance stringer and transom system give you a smooth, dry ride, even in the rough stuff. The Alpha 211 with its massive fishing platform. The Alpha 199, fast and stable. And coming soon, the Alpha 191, a 19-footer with a style, attitude, and a price value all its own. Legend Boats. Catch the wave. Ride with a legend.
Now you can order Bass Edge Season 3 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing as host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Denny Brower, Boyd Duckett, Randy Howell, and Dave Wolak. This two-disc set includes all 13 episodes. That's over 10 hours of Bass Edge, including interviews, bloopers, and highlights, all for just $19.95. Order online at BassEdge.com. And be sure to check out previously released DVDs like Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 and Electronics 101. Bass Edge, Season 3, now on DVD at BassEdge.com. Hey, Edge listeners, this is Scott Suggs. For additional tips and techniques, be sure to join us at BassEdge.com. Aaron, once again, it was awesome visiting with uh, John Van Dam there. He had a lot of great things to talk about uh, as far as, you know, being able to, you know, break down some of the fishing on Great Lakes and, and how he's been so successful, you know, this year up in the Great Lakes region, specifically, obviously, there on Lake Michigan. You mentioned both of us as we fished the Lake St. Clair event just recently and uh, both had some pretty good success. JVD just itched me out there on that one. But uh, anyway, you know, we're talking about folks and weekend anglers being able to go out there and really kind of locate some of these fish and and being able to use their limited time to be able out there go out there and have success do you see uh, at any time where you just get out there and launch the boat and you're like okay where do i start right yeah to me that's the drawing card for the sport of fishing i i really took a lot from jonathan's comment when he said you know what yes you know, and and we're, we've all done this, shared waypoints, shared spots. But I, I really got a lot out of when he said, you know, those are oftentimes the least productive of when I'm going to somebody else's spot. I think the best way and you learn the most is when you're kind of just, you know, baptism by fire of, of yeah. having to launch your boat and go out there and be able to try and figure things out according to the conditions that you're facing that moment. Because right. we, we've heard of the expression fishing the past, but those conditions change. You know, we yeah. can't always depend on a certain spot or a certain bait or anything like that. You've got to have a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C based upon the conditions that your yeah, and like I mentioned earlier, the hardest fish to catch is somebody else's fish. So that's the biggest obstacle. You know, when I when I when I go to some of these places and I and I try and break them down, um, you know, not always do I get very much information heading into these things. So you know, I kind of take what I've learned in the past and I'll break it out. You know, I'll buy a couple different maps for for a particular lake. You know, you, there's lots of map companies out there, and and especially for the Great Lakes, you've got the NOAA maps. You know, the big giant blow ups, and and then you've got you know, a lot of small companies um, make maps as well. But I'll go out there and buy a couple of different maps and lay them all out on the table and cross-reference both of those maps and see what kind of areas are the easiest to define and make sense of for, for my fishing. And and one of the first things I look for specifically with smallmouth and on the Great Lakes are little asterisks on the maps. A lot of times, you know, first I'll ta- I'll try and maybe target some shallow fish, you know, I'll, but I'll go in with an idea, you know, shallow or deep. So let's just say this time, you know, I'm going in shallow and and typically at all times of the year except for maybe in the winter time, you're going to be able to find some shallow smallmouth, you know, in that 2 to to 8 foot range. So I'm looking for these like I said earlier, these little asterisks. And what those little asterisks are, are they're showing places where there's cobble. You know, they're trying to keep these big boats and 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 a lot of these big play- your boats, you know, safe. So they're they're showing on these maps little areas where there's tightly packed and little areas of rock that are up on the bank that otherwise would be dangerous for you to run run a lot of bigger boats up on, but you know, that's exactly what those bass are looking for, and that's exactly where I'm going to run to. And I'm going to get up there and try and hit some of those little asterisks that I find on those little maps or those little rocky areas that are in that shallow zone. Well, and you brought up another completely, you know, separate factor when you're fishing big bodies of water, such as the Great Lakes, even down on your home lake on Amistad, mm-hmm. uh, is safety. And, you know, we've got to be realistic here. You know, these are not small ponds that we're talking about. You know, make sure you're paying attention to the weather. Make sure that your bilge pumps works. Go through and do that checklist and establish those safety items long before you ever get to the boat ramp so that when you get out there, you know, hey, at least my equipment is not going to malfunction. And then the other thing is I would probably throw out there, you know, we're talking specifically about anglers for the first time maybe that do not have any or limited experience on different bodies of water. How can Mm -hmm. they go out and have have success. I'm a big believer, Kurt. Go out, hire a guide. 
you know, even let's say if somebody's coming to Amistad with you, how many times have you taken guys out just to show them kind of not necessarily specifically certain areas, but how to run the lake, how to have success, what baits to throw, how to orientate yourself, you know, according to where you're launching and, and just get around the lake. I think that goes a long way and it's well worth the, you know, three, four hundred dollars that you would spend on a guide for that day. It can make, you know, the thousands of dollars perhaps that you're spending for a week's vacation or you know a several day trip by the time you gas is as expensive as what that is now it's well yeah. worth the investment yeah and i tell you you know it's interesting you bring that up because i actually had some folks come down from from denver colorado they came down to amistad earlier this year and they were belly boaters and um they hired me for a couple days you know what i was able to do for them is show them some good places where they could you know maybe get out of the wind a little bit but still create a good atmosphere at lake amistad for belly boating and then very simply taking them out and showing them what current techniques were working. And, man, they, they went out there and had a really nice trip, spent a great week vacation, were able to do their normal you know type of fishing, which they enjoyed the belly boat fishing, which is great in, in Colorado and anywhere else. There's a lot of small lakes around. But we're still able to enjoy the big water atmosphere. Um, and I think you could take that anywhere, you know, whether it's at Amistad or the Great Lakes, you know, just getting the local knowledge, finding out what baits are currently working, and what are some places that you need to be aware of you know maybe this cove's good on a north wind or this cove's good on a south wind you know and watching your weather and then being able to utilize that information to have a great trip and be able to do the type of fishing that you really want to do well all good stuff and as always Kurt, time is flying by we need to yes. pay some bills take a quick break <laughs> and when we get back we're going to have josh waggy from virginia talk about some things that i think everybody's going to want to hear Patented in 2000, perfected over years of testing and real-world punishment, the Powerful is the ultimate shallow-water boat positioning tool. Swift, Powerful deploys in seconds from anywhere in your boat. Virtually silent, Powerful won't spook wary fish. Secure in strong currents or gusting winds in up to 8 feet of water. Engineered to take it with a lifetime unconditional replacement guarantee on the spike. Powerful, swift, silent, secure. Visit Powerpole.com to find a dealer near you. Under the lily pads in a lake near you, live bass happy and free until one man with a huge resume and immeasurable experience building the finest rods in the world changed everything. Gary Dobbins offers three full lines of tournament-winning rods. The Champion Extreme, Champion, and Savvy Series. Dobbins Rods. When fishing is more than a hobby. I'm Pam Martin Wells, and you're on Bass Edge. Well, Aaron, here we bring to the listeners another young gun and perennial top ten fisherman. I mean, this this young fellow's got four top tens as a co-angler in 06 and 07. Then, Aaron, he crossed over to the boater side in 2008, and now he's got seven top tens as a professional and amassed nearly $90,000 in tournament winnings from Bass and FLW in just a really short career. Uh, we welcome here a newcomer to Bass Edge, the James River, BASS Northern Open champion, and now the uh, 2013 Bassmaster Classic Qualifier Joshua Waggy of DeWitt, Virginia. Thanks for taking time and chatting with us today, Josh. How y'all doing this morning? Josh, we are doing great. like to welcome you to the edge. Again, just want to thank you for taking time out to spend some time here with us. You know, Josh, I'm amazed. In, in looking over your, what I would consider, you know, for us old guys here, speaking specifically of Kurt and I, your relatively short career statistics, it's, it's pretty impressive for a young angler. Actually, it's pretty impressive for an old angler as well. How do you attribute your success and, and really the tournament fishing skills at such a young age? And then can you pin down for us a, a few key factors that's helped you with your quick progression as a tournament angler? I grew up around a lot of good fishermen. I grew up fishing with my dad when I was younger. And one day he looked at me and he told me, he said, you know, I've taught you everything I can possibly teach you. You're going to have to start traveling and, and learn from some other people different things and techniques because he couldn't teach me anymore. And, you know, i got to thank Jacob Prosnick. He's helped me a lot along the way and, and 
taught me a lot of things when I was traveling with him in 2006 and 2007. One of the biggest things that he taught me is keep an open mind. Don't let what everybody else is talking about throw you for a loop and do your own thing. If you think it'll work, try it. You know, when you, like what you said you mentioned of your dad, I'm assuming you're probably referring to kind of like what we would call in any other sport, let's say the fundamentals. You know, what were some of those things that you had to venture out there on your own and really kind of kick the tires and and really learn just by experience? Growing up, I mean, I, I was really a shallow water, kind of wood type fisherman. And then I, you know, I ventured out and in a lot of these lakes we go to now, they have some form of grass in it, whether it be shoreline grass or submerged vegetation or matted grass that grows up to the top and things like that. And when I first started, if you look at my track record over the years, I've done very well at the Potomac River. And that was one of the places that I really had to bear down and get outside the spectrum of what I was used to and teach myself a lot about fishing vegetation, you know. I didn't know anything about punching mats or throwing a frog or a swim jig or anything of that nature. And basically, I spent two summers up there doing nothing but in my spare time when I didn't have a tournament anywhere else. I was up there fishing, trying to teach myself how to flip matted grass, what to look for, throwing a frog, figuring out a swim jig and when it worked and when it didn't, where were the most productive places to throw it and things like that. Now, Josh, you know, is that something where you would have somebody else in your boat and they would kind of go over some of these tactics with you and, and you would kind of learn from them? Or was it more of a trial and error type situation that, you know, you kind of progressed through those summers that, that you spent up there? I always had somebody in the boat with me, I guess, just to make the, the whole learning curve, I guess, fun. But most of it was trial and error. I know Kurt knows him. Terry Ollinger is a, a real good fisherman on the Potomac River. And, and if I had any questions or doubt about what I was doing, I would ask him. And the one main thing that he always told me that stuck out in my mind was persistence will pay off. Meaning that if I kept at it and kept throwing a frog and kept punching mats and kept playing with that swim jig, that one day it would all click in my mind. I would see the things that I was missing. And he's absolutely correct. When you spend so much time critiquing and learning certain techniques, you get to the point to where it almost comes as second nature. And I mean, I, I pulled up to a place in Thousand Islands one year, and I said, I'm going to catch some fish in here on a frog. I said, this is beautiful frog water. That day, I should have had probably 20 to 22 pounds, and I think I only caught like eight because I missed almost every good one that blew up from my frog. But I mean, <laughs> back to what I was getting at, I mean, you just, you learn those things. A lot of people learn by somebody showing them or, or pointing them in the right direction, but a lot of that stuff was just stuff I had to take and, and fine-tune and let it materialize into, you know, basically teaching myself. That's great stuff. You know, I've heard this throughout, you know, my career and, and my fishing experience and, and Aaron I'm sure you have as well but you know you hear so many times that if you want to learn a new technique or, or learn something you, you you really have to pick up that bait or commit to that technique for you know several days in order to really see how you can take advantage of of that technique or or you know that maybe that particular lure and it sounds like Josh you know that's that's kind of the the way you went about it as well and and you've been able to perfect a lot of those techniques and and it's and it's obviously made you into a winner in a lot of respects. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if anybody tells you, hey, I, I finally learned everything there is to know about bass fishing, it's such a broad world. I mean, you know, there's always new things coming out. There's always new techniques that people are coming up with. And I mean, there's still a lot of techniques that I've got to critique and master before I start traveling around and fishing full time, which they're not really different techniques. It's just they're not a strong point in my style yeah, you know, you know, Josh, it's really interesting that that you mentioned that too. As far as you know, when when decide to uh, you know pick up a different technique or change things, you know, one other thing that we hear many fishermen contemplate is when they're ready to jump from the co angler side of competition or maybe to the boater side of fishing tournaments. You know, I, I really find your story pretty unique. You know, at 18, you know, you won the 2006 TBF FLW Junior National Championships. Evident in your statistics, you decided to fish as a co-angler for a year or two after that and you had great success all of a sudden in 2008 you decide to jump to the boater side or, or the professional side of tournament fishing what really makes you get
get to the point that prompts you to say, you know what, I'm ready. Because we see a lot of people that are starting to fish and they and they get into the back of the boat and they learn some things, but they really struggle with that decision on, on when to move to the boater side. What, what really prompted you to decide to make that leap? I think the biggest thing was is you've got to have the confidence in yourself, especially if you fish a, a series of the Cohen where they pretty much go to the same places year in and year out where you learn a little bit about them, you learn the techniques, you learn where some of the broader areas are to go and look and find fish as to, you know, what history shows. And then also in some of those areas, there there's different things out of the normal than the guys you fished with those few years. They were around, but they never fished. It's stuff that plays into your style. But I think the biggest thing is, is having the confidence to tell yourself, you know, hey, I've done it for a few years. I've been successful. I think in my mind, just like I did, that, that I can go out here and compete against these guys. I mean, that was the biggest thing for me. I'll never forget uh, early on in in really Bass Edge's infancy, I had a conversation, did an interview with Greg Hackney, and he pointed out, made it very clear, you know, his rule of thumb was he felt, uh, of course, he started kind of through the FLW side and, and fishing some of the BFLs as on the co-angler, then eventually moved up to the boater side and, and naturally progressed. And he was a big proponent. He said, you know, I really feel like that system, whether it be FLW, BASS, or, or what circuit really doesn't matter, but, you know, using the, the benchmarks and the stepping stones within those organizations, he said, because if you're successful at the lower levels and then gradually you move up, it's it's almost like going to school is, is kind of the way he described it. You know, first you go to elementary school and then you go off to, to middle school and high school and college, so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, and I thought that really, you know, made made a lot of sense. I think when you start out at the lower levels, when you're, I guess, green, so to speak, and you, and you come into it, or you start at the club tournament level, and then you move to the BFLs, and then you gradually work your way on up, you start at basically the basic fundamentals, and then you start critiquing things. And what fueled the fire for me is when I first started out, I did okay, but I didn't do as well as I wanted to. So it was like pouring gasoline on fire, you know, if you didn't do as well as you wanted to, it kind of sparked the interest and the want and the drive to learn more and more and more to push you up to the level where you wanted to be. And I don't really think any bass fisherman in the world gets to, so to speak, the point where he wants to be. There's always more. Look at David Dudley. I mean, guys want almost everything there is to win. He still has the want and drive to want more and more and more and more. And he, he never gets relaxed or, or gives up on anything. He just keeps going. That's kind of the way I've looked at it. I mean, and Dudley, you know, he's, he's made a few comments here and there that, that I really have taken to heart. He's always said, don't worry about the things you can't change, the weather, and, and so to speak. He said, that's always going to be a factor. You can't make it any different. You just have to deal with what you have and make it work. And that's kind of molded into basically the stepping stones and the critiquing and everything that you come along with as you work your way through. You meet guys like him, and you kind of learn and take to heart what some of those people say. That's really interesting, uh, you know, reading into what Josh is saying there. I see that a lot of your influences really come not necessarily from mechanics or how to fish something. You kind of learn a lot of those things on your own, but but a lot of the influence that you've had comes you know, mentally. Uh, the mental aspect is really, you know, we, we talk about that a lot in, in fishing and, and how much it really matters and when to change a bait or, or, or when to, you know, change locations or whatever. We come into contact out there while we're fishing, whether you're you're out there fishing in a pond and you're throwing a spinner bait and decide to change to a buzz bait or decide to change to a plastic worm. All those mental mental things and mental decisions that we have to make are probably the most important ones. And, and that seems to be what you've taken from a lot of the uh, anglers that you've been able to come in contact that have been successful in your life, and it seems like it's really rubbed off and then helped you believe that you've had success from those things as well. So, so that's pretty cool. And Josh, I tell you, you know, talk about the mental aspect. You, you know, you go into decision making, and uh, one of the biggest decisions that anglers have to factor in when fishing tidal rivers is when to stay in a location or when the tide is perceived right in a location or to leave and explore different locales. I noticed that it's been written in 
in your uh, James River tournament that you won there about six or eight weeks ago that you stayed within 10 miles of the launch site when you won that tournament. The tides, obviously, you know, because of the tidal river systems and how things work, they weren't always necessarily in your favor the entire fishing day if you stayed that close to the ramp. So kind of a two-part question here. One is how did you determine whether to run and gun or how do you determine whether to run and gun or fish a spot on a tidal river? And the second question would be what in particular helped you make your decision to stay put in that particular open event? Like you said, it really wasn't the greatest tide in the world. I had myself on basically a really limited strapped time period for about two and a half hours the first day. And I had a handful of spots in a 10-mile area that were pretty close together. You'd fish one until, you know, they basically either quit biting or that you felt. I mean, like the first morning when I pulled into my first spot, I caught a lemon in like 30 minutes. And that was an area that I didn't want to beat up on too bad because I could pull in there and catch five fish every day, and I didn't want to wear it out. And when you think in that aspect of it, as far as when to run and gun, that was just a decision to leave them alone and not beat up on them too bad for chance of wearing them out, basically, and, and catching everything in there before your third day was up. So I guess there it was just kind of a thing for me if I decided that that's where I was going to try to catch a limit every morning and then just leave it be, whether I was catching 12 inches or pound and a half, two pound fish, that, that's just what I made in my mind if I need to catch five and get away from it. And I had one spot that was really key on time, which was like, say, the last 20 minutes of the outgoing time. And then after that, it's just one of those spots they just don't bite there anymore. I mean, it's just the last 20 minutes. And if you hit it and you get bit, they're going to be good quality fish. And the first day, I missed my time period by like 30 minutes. So that kind of shot my day off. Not very productive, I guess. Felt like I missed out on something. And then, you know, every day when you fish on a tidal river, you get more time with the tide. So basically the second day, I had 45 minutes more time to allow myself to make my, my milk run, so to speak. Start at one point and run my way up the river and then turn and let the water start coming in. And I, and I could catch a few fish on incoming water, but it seemed like the better quality was right there when the tide first started coming in. Every tidal river system is different, in my opinion. The Potomac is different from the James. I think we went to the Hudson River one year, and it was tidal. And that was one of the funkiest tides I believe I've ever fished. The window of opportunity there was smaller than any other tidal river I've ever been on. The thing about knowing when to stay and when to leave, I guess, is it just depends on, on what you're fishing and where you're fishing at. I mean, if you're fishing wood, I mean, theoretically, you can only make one or two passes through a stretch of wood with a couple different baits before you've either caught everything that's going to bit or you've missed your tide, you know, the outgoing tide on that wooded stretch of bank that you're fishing. Taking a perspective of the Potomac River, I mean, generally I look for one or two spots up there and I, I stay put in, in the one that I feel has the best quality of fish in it and I stay there from first thing in the morning till time to go in and it paid off for me really well. I mean, in the the two differences, I guess you could say, is the difference between fishing vegetation and, and hardcover. There's not but so many fish that can hold on, on one log unless you find a log that's magical, so to speak, and they just reload and replenish. Catch one, one more swims right up there and gets in line to eat. And, I mean, there's so few of those places, it's hard to really find one. And vegetation, you, I mean, you're fishing, a, you know, 100 to 200-yard stretch of, of grass, and there's so many fish, from my experience, that live in aquatic vegetation, whether it's submerged and under the water where you can't see it or whether it comes all the way to the top of the water. There's so many fish that live in that broad area because there's such a wealth of forage in there, you know, whether it be bluegills or crawdads or minnows or crabs, sand eels. I mean, there's so many different aspects that, that live in aquatic vegetation that they have a certain time period where they feed the best, but they will feed all throughout the day. And I guess the difference in the two is you, you have to feel confident in, in your areas to know if you need to run and gun with the tide or you need to stay put and hunker down and really hammer on it hard and see what's really there. Well, Josh, while we're on the topic of, of current, you know, a lot of our audience perhaps 
fishes from a belly boat, you know, in a lake or something that you're not allowed to have big motors to, you know, running a kayak down their favorite stream to walking the shore in a city lake. And and while we're on the subject of that current, you know, the question is, how much does current really matter? You know, when you're fishing tidal waters versus man-made or natural lakes to a city lake to your favorite stream, you know, what are the biggest differences that you notice in how fish relate to cover and structure, and how might you adjust a presentation to the fish to be more successful at catching bass? Well, in the current situation, it's kind of like if you jump into a river, would it be easier for you to swim in the middle of a river behind nothing, or would it be easier for you to look upstream and find a log and get over towards behind that log where the current sweeps around it and makes an eddy and slows the water down. The bass, a lot of times, you know, I've seen very few that'll just be hanging out somewhere where they're not sitting behind something where they can see around it or over it or under it. Or A bass, he wants to be as comfortable as he can in a place where he's going to eat and exert as little effort as possible to stay in a situation where he feels like he can eat when the opportunity arises. Basically, he's not going to exert himself with so much to eat. And in a current situation, he's got the prime opportunity because he can pull right up behind a log or a big rock or in a lake, in a lake, that, a man-made lake that they, they generate power or they pull water and fluctuate the water levels. Those fish will get out there on those humps out on the lake and they'll position himself on one side of the hump or the other. Most of the times I've found that the bigger fish will be on the upcurrent side of something in the eddy where it hits and it rolls underneath the water. You can't see it, but that's what it does. And what he does is he just sits there and he waits, like in front of a hump. The water washes up to the face of the hump and then it turns and it spirals as it goes over. And then on the backside, You'll have some good fish there, but not as many as the ones that will be on the front side, in my opinion. Josh, I know you own a thriving trolling motor repair business up there in Richmond called the Virginia Trolling Motor Service. Having trolling motors and boats and for years and years and years, I'm curious as to what your list of top five must-haves to advert you know, a lost fishing day. So what are the five things I need to carry in my boat to fix my trolling motor while I'm on the water? If you're pretty mechanically inclined, a steering cable is probably the biggest A number one thing to carry. Number two is probably a spare prop with a prop nut and a shear pin. Number three would be a an extra circuit breaker. I've run into a lot of guys that think, man, my motor was running perfect, and then it just quit. Now it won't run at all. You check your power, and your circuit breaker's gone bad. So that's probably the third biggest okay. thing. A switch. I know a lot of the switches go bad in the foot pedal either the toggle switch or the switch you step on to make it run, basically the momentary switch. And the fifth thing is the tools to to take those pieces and parts out and replace in a timely manner. All right, good stuff. Man, that's the worst thing, Aaron. Have you ever been stuck out there and just, just not been able to go anymore? All of a sudden the trolling motor quits and you, you throw your hands up and all of a sudden you're driving back to the ramp, loading it up, taking it over to Josh's place. <laughs> Absolutely, no. I, I can remember when uh, we were, you know, not just tournament-wise, but, you know, when we were filming a show with Pete Ponce and, uh, golly, ran into a stump doing about Mach 7, you know, trying to get to the next spot and <laughs> the shaft and, of course, then, you know, we had two boats and we were fortunate to where the boats are identical and so we just everybody just did a switch but it's kind of hard to maneuver with a, a u for a shaft <laughs> yeah it doesn't, exactly. doesn't steer too well but hey josh before we let you get out of here i want to pose a listener question that we had asked uh, jonathan van dam right before you uh and it actually comes from paul tiffany from fergus falls minnesota and he wants to know when fishing some topwater baits sometimes the line slaps and zips on the surface of the water. Do you notice that it affects the number of bites when that is happening? Again, this is Paul in Fergus Falls, Minnesota. In my opinion, I've, I've never really seen where it hinders your number of bites. In some cases, especially fishing submerged vegetation or matted grass where that line actually slaps on the matted grass, I've actually I've seen where it helps. Because the fish would be laying down underneath that mat looking at something and hearing something slapping over the top of his head. And then all of a sudden your frog gets to that point where that line's been slapping and his attention is already drawn straight to where that sound was coming from. And now there's 
basically a mass moving across of that vegetation, and that, that strikes his curiosity. Hey, that's something to eat. I need to eat it. As far as in open water, I don't think it does because I've never really had a had an issue where I thought that that was why I wasn't getting any bites. Well, I think that's uh, that's good advice, and I think it comes back to what you'd said earlier in the interview. It comes down to confidence, you know, and just kind of that mental aspect, and and knowing that you've got the confidence to make that cast. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be throwing that bait to begin with. So, all good stuff, Josh. And and like I said, you are simply just a wealth of information for such a, a young angler. We do appreciate having you here on the edge, and uh, certainly look forward to seeing how uh, how the rest of your season goes. And wish you the best of luck in the upcoming 2013 Bassmaster. Classic. In the meantime, Josh, have a great rest of the season, and we look forward to talking with you again in the near future. Yes, sir. Thank you and Kurt, and thanks to Bass Edge for giving me a shout. I really appreciate it. It's been fun this morning. We'll see you out there on the tour there, Josh. Bye. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. Keel Guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard Keel Protectors. Why did they consistently win? Why did they know about all the latest and greatest baits? BassTackleDepot.com, of course. BassTackleDepot.com is your headquarters for all your bass fishing needs. With over 100 different manufacturers in stock, including Dobbins Rods, Bassaholics Clothing, Boat Bling Cleaning Products, Black Dog, Pepper Baits, Jean LaRue, Jack Allure Company, McCoy Line, not to mention a talented staff of hardcore anglers ready to assist your every need. It's no wonder Bass Tackle Depot is where the pros shop. Well, certainly nice hearing from a guy from your old stomping grounds, Kurt. Yeah, that's right. Josh Waggy. He was, uh, you know, he's, he's an up-and-coming guy. He's going he's to be very interesting to see how his career develops. And uh, certainly, I'll be taking some of those tidal water tactic tips. Absolutely. To, uh, I'm going I'm to be taking some of his trolling motor tips. I thought that was fantastic advice, Like much like we talked about. Uh, boy, the last thing you want to have happen is to have a breakdown out on the water. We don't get enough time out there as it is. So when we get out there, we want to make sure we make the most of it. So those are great tips, and I'll have those items in my boat for sure. Well, hey, it's it's uh, time to give something away. As you know, uh, listener questions, those that are chosen and answered on air, receive a BassTackleDepot.com $25 gift card. And, Kurt, uh, you're going to do us the honors as this question had your name written all over it. As Michael right. from Prince George, Canada writes, Every summer I head down to southern British Columbia. I got a little tickled there that he's heading <laughs> south and it's British Columbia. Um, but to get away from the trout fishing and to do some bass fishing. I fished one lake that has pretty much everything you could ask for in a lake, weeds, rocks, timber, and varies from 10 to 80 feet with mostly clear to slightly stained water. It also has a river draining into and out of it. I've used soft plastic jigs, cranks, topwater spinnerbaits with mostly one to two pounders and an occasional three pounder. I've seen countless five to ten, but can never get a reaction. How can I get these fish to bite? Where's the best place to locate them? P.S. Love the show. There you go, Kurt. Set him on his way. Well, I tell you what, that's that's a great question, and, and um, Michael covers a lot of things here in this question. The first thing I want to say is, the thing that sticks out to me most about this, this lake that he's able to visit is that there's a river flowing in and out of it. So so that river, obviously, and we've talked about some earlier today, current. Um, you know, So that current is going to play a major role in positioning and locating these fish. Um, obviously, he's located some. He's seen countless you know, five to ten pounders. Uh, up to this point but uh so what michael what i think and anybody else that encounters this type of situation i think the first thing that i'm going to do is i'm going to go to the mouth of those rivers and um i'm going to try and utilize that current to my advantage on how i know it will position a fish so i'm going to get to the mouth and and i'm going to look for any kind of cover in shallow water uh, whether it be a log or some grass or some rocks and i'm going to fish directly behind and in front of that cover um you know josh 
mentioned earlier today that that he a lot of times catches a lot of the bigger fish out in front of the current because they're kind of you know the dominant fish so i'm going to utilize some of his tips and i'm also going to utilize some of my knowledge and, and get all around any kind of that structure that's going to break that current so i think that's the first thing um but utilizing different baits like you are michael you know the soft plastics the jigs the top waters the cranks the spinner baits all of those are going to have some really good success just make sure you use those particular lures around the proper cover you know if i'm throwing a soft plastic bait typically i'm flipping you know maybe some shallow water around some some logs or maybe fishing a deep hump or something texas rig style if i'm throwing a jig i'm going to make sure i use my football jig around the rocks and and maybe use a flipping jig up around some grass and of course crankbaits always make sure you deflect those crankbaits off something um whether it be the bottom if there is no cover around but if there's rocks or wood um you know make sure you deflect them off those as well the top waters critical to use them at the right times you know if you see some bait dimpling in the surface or obviously in the early morning or late evening that can be obviously the way to go but apparently he's found a great fishing hole here uh, maybe sometime i can get up there with michael and try and tackle it as well but um I think with persistence uh, and, and confidence, you know, you're going to be able to get these fish to bite. And the best place to locate them is definitely at the mouths of those rivers. So that's the way I tackle that. How about you, Aaron? The only thing I think I would add is obviously, like you pointed out, he's in the right areas. You know, perhaps I would consider, you know, if he's seeing these cruising fish, and, and let's be honest, I mean, I think we've got to put this in perspective. You know, with age and wisdom, you know, they don't get that big by being dumb. So these mm-hmm. fish are smart. But a cruising fish, we know, is a little bit harder to catch than a fish that's holding tight to cover or positioning from an ambush standpoint. So I would almost suggest even perhaps backing out a little bit, using those electronics to see if he can't find some higher concentrations, you know, perhaps, and going back to what you said, around the right cover. If he's noticing that he's catching the two-pounders out of grass, shallow grass, perhaps move out to the secondary edge. Maybe the bigger fish are hanging out there uh, that aren't cruising that are just waiting for that easy meal to come by. So again, you know, much like we talk about even in the electronics video that Bass Edge has out, make sure to use the electronics if you have those accessible. Yeah, I agree. And if there's any one more thing I guess I could throw out there, if he's catching a lot of one to two pounders with the occasional three pounder, maybe upsize your bait presentation. You know, if you're using a seven inch worm, maybe jump it up to a 10 inch worm. If you're using a quarter ounce jig, jump it up to maybe a half ounce or, or you know, maybe even as large as a three quarter quarter ounce jig if you're fishing some grass and things like that but uh, a lot of times the the bigger fish is going to eat a bigger meal so um that might be something you want to try too well thanks again michael for sending that question in and don't forget you too you send your questions in for the chance and the opportunity to have those answered by the pros on air and receive that gift card hey speaking of giveaways kurt uh, one of the things that we alluded to last podcast as well as on facebook is this new giveaway that's coming up by keel guard and this is going to be a progressive giveaway and it's something that you absolutely do not want want to miss because by the time that January of 2013 rolls around never before in the history of Bass Edge have we ever done something like this and I'm going to leave it like that because it's something that I promise you every single listener out there is going to want to have their name entered in for this drawing but up until then we're going to be doing some product giveaways and the way to go about that is first and foremost is you have to like Keelguard on their Facebook page so I'm encouraging you right now to go ahead get on Facebook if you can't find Keelguard by doing the search just simply go to Bass Edge's Facebook page as many of you already have liked that right there in our likes it will bring up a direct link to Keelguard to where you can click over like them because by the next time the episode rolls around those gift certificates the free product giveaway is going to be well underway so again don't forget to do that also send in your questions for your chance to uh, get entered into some of these drawings that we're having the listeners send the questions to info at BassEdge.com, right? Or That's correct. Or they can post something on our Facebook page uh, for a chance to hear your question on the show. Also, I want to remind all the listeners, remember to show your appreciation for all of our great Bass Edge sponsors. Uh, email, Facebook, tweet them your excitement for the show. And remember to like Bass Edge, as Aaron said, on Facebook. And I generally don't forget, but we need to remind the listeners to get 15% off their next BassTackleDepot.com purchase by entering the promo code B.E.Special. It'll save a bundle of cash on their entire purchase of tackle. All good stuff. Kurt, that is officially one for the books. 
We have the August podcast underway. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Have to move on for episode number 146 and our new co-host, Mr. Kurt Dove. I am Aaron Martin. Until next time, have a great week, everybody. The Edge is presented by Kill Guard Kill Protector. For more information on Bass Edge or to shop at the Bass Edge online store, visit www.bassedge.com. And be sure to join Kurt Dove and Aaron Martin right here on another episode of The Edge. Brought to you in part by Legend Boats, BassTackleDepot.com, PowerPole, Dobbins Rods, Mercury Outboards, and Rapaholic.com.